Welcome. We're continuing our study in apologetics, defending the faith. Uh, this is week three. Tonight we're going to be looking at uh, the, the big concept, the pivotal concept of world views. Um, just to spend a little time just reviewing some of the things that Dan has been saying, uh, apologetics is a reasoned defense of the faith. It holds out God's word as the only correct way to understand all of life. The Christian life is a life of faith in God and his interpretation of reality as we see it in Scripture. But our faith is not blind faith. It is not unreasonable. The Christian faith is a worldview that makes sense of ourselves, our experiences, and our world. But of course it does. Because it is God's world. And his word, his interpretation of reality has to be the only correct one that makes sense of it. He tells us who we are and how we are to live. He exposes our fundamental problem, which is sin, and then gives us an answer of how to solve it. Uh, the last two weeks, we've been looking at sort of the foundational passage on apologetics, where we get the word, actually, from the verse. This is 1 Peter 3, so you can turn back to that again. 1 Peter 3, verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense, an apology to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. In apologetics, we make a defense. We bring an argument to bear. But we hear that word argument, and it just creates all kinds of pictures in our mind, doesn't it? We think of yelling and red in the face, and that's not, it's not about being argumentative. It's a discussion. Actually, what I have found is one of the most helpful things in this approach is to ask probing questions. Not just to trick the other person or make them look stupid or to tear them down, but to truly understand how they think. So then we can care for them and bring clarity. Questions are an important part of the process. Often they can expose the inconsistencies and the holes in someone's worldview without God. In 2 Corinthians 10, 5, Paul tells us to destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Any worldview that does not begin with God and end with God is just someone's opinion. And there's not much foundation to that. A person cannot 
adequately explain God's world if he ignores God who defines it. Uh, David Pallison was um, uh, the, the director of Christian Counseling Education Foundation, passed away last year, but I remember in a class he said, the world is trying to explain its experience looking at a chessboard, but only seeing half the pieces. In this particular class, he was talking about secular psychology, but, um, but it's the same, because psychology is a worldview. It's a system that makes sense of why people do what they do. And his point is, you can look at half of the chessboard and try to make sense of how the pieces move, but unless you understand that they're moving in relationship to the other pieces, you're really not understanding the game and what's happening. Everybody is in a relationship with God. Everybody. We other are either covenant keepers or covenant re- uh, rebels. We all have a relationship with God. We either submit to him or we claim our own independence. What we do in this process is actually caring about people, asking questions to understand so that we can give the reason for the hope that we have. We can demonstrate that the Bible makes sense of God's world. But we give this reason, we give this answer, this apology, uh, and this is very important, underline in your Bible, because this is where, I was going to say most of us fail, this is where I fail. Uh, uh, We do it with gentleness and respect. It's not just what we say, but how we say it. We are not debating, we are not belittling, we are speaking truth in love. What we say and how we say it is an important part of the apologetic process. It's, it's hard to believe that God is love if his representative is not very loving in the process, right? What we say and how we say it flows out of the reality that Christ is our Lord. And he dictates to us how we treat people. Look back at First uh, Peter 3 again. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Perhaps a, a, a better translation, and, and this is the New American Standard, says, but sanctify Christ as holy as Lord. It's not a title, it's what you're doing. Exalt Christ in your heart as Lord. And as you exalt him as Lord, that changes how you think about reality and how you treat people. 
And in doing so, you present the gospel in real life. As we exalt Christ in our minds and our hearts, as the Lord, we believe who he is and what he has said in his word. And so what we say, the reason we give, is shaped by Scripture. And how we say it with gentleness and respect is a fruit of the Spirit within us. The reason we give, God exists. We are made in his image. He has redeemed us and called us to live in certain ways. Last week... Uh, uh, Dan mentioned that this, uh, uh, this particular approach to apologetics has two foundational principles. Uh, can anyone remember one of them? And Dan can't answer this. You won't get credit for answering. What's the first one? No autonomy. No autonomy is the first. Humanity, hold on, humanity, she's very anxious to answer. Humanity is not the ultimate source of wisdom and authority. We are not a law unto ourselves. We do not determine what is true and what is false. God does that. Everything else is supposed to come under God. We were made to be dependent upon God. If you think back to the Garden of Eden, what does God tell Adam and Eve? He says, he tells them who, the, who he is, and he tells them what they are supposed to do. Be fruitful, multiply, and take dominion over the earth. He interprets reality for them. He tells them what they're supposed to do in life. We are dependent, and unless we recognize that we need to be dependent, listen to God's voice, we will not understand our world properly. Anybody remember the second? Yeah, Lorraine? No neutrality. Every single one of us has presuppositions, pre-commitments, things that we already believe that shape the way we interpret everything else. There are no uninterpreted facts. Everything we think is objective fact, we're interpreting. What we already believe shapes how we think about the world and how we make sense of it. I'll give you a prime example. And you don't have to answer this out loud. Please don't. Because I don't want to have an argument here. Who won the debate last night? It depends what channel you watch, doesn't it? If you watch MSNBC, Biden blew it out of the water. If you watch Fox, Biden didn't do so well. I, we were on vacation. And uh, uh, we only had basic cable at the time. And uh, at vacation, I was watching uh, Joe Scarborough on MSNBC in the morning and flipping from that to Fox News, and they were talking about the very same story. And I, it was comical because I kept going back and forth. And I realized they live in two totally different worlds. 
because they're totally interpreting it exactly the opposite. You, you don't know what to think or to believe. That's just a prime example of the reality that everything is an interpretation. Our culture, our background, our experience shape how we think about the facts as they're presented to us. And beyond culture and experience, the fallen man has a sinful nature. And as Romans 1, we'll look at it later, he suppresses the truth of God in unrighteousness. Everything we think is an interpretation. The question is, how much does God's interpretation of reality shape your interpretation? How dependent are you upon God to decide what is real and what is not? What is true? What is valuable? What are your presuppositions? Is your heart and your mind so filled with the Word of God that it is properly shaping how you think? Are we taking every thought captive? If we are not then our thinking often is very much like the world on most issues. And if our thoughts and, and, and the consequential actions are not much different than the world, then what is it that we're offering them? If I behave, if I think and behave on any issue like a non-believer, I should ask myself what's wrong with that. If you're a parent and you think about discipline the way your neighbors do and you discipline the exact same way, how are you disciplining in a distinctly Christian way? Even if the discipline ends up being the same, you should be thinking about it differently because God exists. Those children are not your own. They belong to him. This is a stewardship. He is your father. He is good and kind to you. You are their parent, and so you're good and kind to them. It should at least shape your motivation so that even if you're doing the same things as a non-believer and, and how you raise your children and discipline them in certain ways, that at least you're thinking about it differently. The gospel is not to be just tacked on to life. I can live and think any way that I want, but at least I get to go to heaven. The, the gospel changes how we think about all reality. It shapes how we live to the glory of God, and that is revealed to the unbelieving world. That's part of our apologetic. In uh, Romans chapter 1 to 11, Paul expounds upon the gospel. And then in chapter 20, uh, 12, he begins to move to application, the implications of the gospel and how we live. And he says this in Romans 12, verses 1 to 2, Therefore, brothers, I appeal to you by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, as your spiritual or rational mode of worship. 
Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove and demonstrate that the will of God is good, acceptable, and perfect. Mind renewal. Mind transformation is hard work. But it flows out of a love for God. And it's the exaltation of Christ as Lord of our life, as a rational form of worship. We love God with our heart and our mind. Jude 3, uh, Dan quoted this the first week, Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered for the saints. Apologetics isn't just for the unbelieving world, it's for us. Because we need our mind transformed. We need the apologetic of Scripture to challenge us in our thinking so that we think God's thoughts after Him. There's a, in the apologetic section in the bookstore, there's a, a series of books by uh, Vern Poitras from Westminster. And uh, Vern, uh, before he got his Ph.D. to teach theology, he got a, a Ph.D. in math from Harvard. He was one of those guys who had to dumb everything down for us. But even as he taught, I would go, you've got to bring it down a little lower. And he would talk about math. It's, it's fascinating to hear him speak uh, about mathematics. Because we think mathematics is the same for everyone. He says, no, it's not. There's an apologetic to math. And the fact that God exists changes how we think about numbers and math. Uh, He's got a book out called Redeeming Math. He's got a number of books out. Redeeming Logic, Redeeming Science, Redeeming Math. Uh, I've never read the math book. It sounds good, but I, 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 I gave it to Jennifer for her birthday one year. Was, did you enjoy it? She loved it. Um, but she's a math person. By the, but I have no idea where I'm at and what I just said or how I got there. Uh, by the power of the Spirit, we submit to the Word and so develop the mind of Christ that is already ours by virtue of the new birth. God gives us a new nature and a new mind, but we have this old nature and this old mind. And we need to feed the new, we need to shape it, we need to grow it through the Word and through prayer. We need to to have our minds transformed by the Word of God. And that's why we put so much emphasis on discipleship here. So that we can develop strong, biblical, and sound Christian worldviews. If you're part of a growth group, you know that it's it's a little different than just a Bible study. Bible studies are wonderful. But at a Bible study, we show up and we receive. In a growth group, 
there's a little bit of time you have to spend outside the group actually doing the work yourself. Reading, comparing to scripture, asking questions, thinking through prayerfully on the truths of God so that you can actually talk about it. What is the greatest command, according to Jesus? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Oz Guinness, a Christian philosopher, wrote a book about 25 years ago called Fit Bodies and Fat Minds. And he was talking about the anti-intellectualism of the evangelical church. We have fit bodies, some of us. And, and fat minds. Because we're lazy. Because to give ourselves to scripture to study and to think is hard. Our desire here is to, that we each would have a thoroughly Christian worldview. Not that we all would vote the same way or believe always the same things on every issue. But that we're all thinking about it. And we're comparing what we think with how the Bible says we should think. So what is a worldview? A worldview is a network of ultimate beliefs, ideas, values, and assumptions about the universe and our place in it that shapes how we understand life and its experiences and then determines how we respond and act to those experiences. Everyone has a worldview that answers the big questions about God and ourselves and our world. A worldview functions like a pair of glasses through which we see the world. They're the intellectual filter to make sense of the world. Uh, uh, someone's worldview largely determines their opinions on politics and ethics. It shapes what people think about abortion, same-sex relationships, gender identity, the role of government, environmentalism, animal rights, genetic enhancement. It runs the gamut across everything. And it's important for us to be aware that we have a worldview and other people have a worldview. Why? Because worldviews are the foundation for how people think and then what they do. And every world religion, Hinduism, Islam, atheism, Christianity, and every secular ideology, Marxism, capitalism, naturalism, is a reflection of some particular worldview or worldviews a set of beliefs or presuppositions about the world. And our worldview should be Christian. 
to apply the reality of the scriptures to life. And so it's both fruitful and effective to engage with non-believers and their ideologies on the level of the worldview that they reflect. And so why should we think in terms of worldviews in our apologetics? First, it helps us to understand people. It's a way to love people. Do you like to be misrepresented? And misunderstood? I don't. Nobody does. And so as you truly engage with people with what they think and why they think the way they do, it's, it's an act of love. We begin to understand why they do what they do. And so as we think about another person's worldview, we're able to make comparisons and evaluations. As we understand their worldview, we can begin to ask insightful questions, and sometimes it's in the questions that they begin to realize the inconsistencies. Uh, I love to tell stories about this guy, Jack. Jack was an older Jewish man who I met at a coffee shop on City Line Avenue in Philadelphia. Jen and I lived in City Line in an apartment for a couple of years. And uh, Jack, uh, I don't know why he kept coming and talking to me because he didn't like the things I said. But I, I remember one day, and we're going to deal with this issue again later, his belief was there was no such thing as good and evil. That those are what's called a human construct. In other words, people just make that up. We do, we do stuff, but we've all agreed that these things are good, these things are bad, but they have no inherent morality in themselves. It's just what we decide. There's no such thing as good and evil. I think he believed that so he could do whatever he wanted. And then one day he was telling me uh, about how his uh, ex-wife had mistreated him. And if his story is true, uh, it, was pretty, it was pretty bad. And so I asked him, I said, was, was that wrong of her to do that? And he had to admit it was wrong. That's not a construct. He knew it was wrong. People know there's right and wrong. Why do they believe that? Only because God exists and tells them that. As the Holy Spirit works, as we engage and ask questions, people can begin to see the inadequacy of their worldview, that it cannot make sense of God's world. It may, like that chessboard, it may explain certain moves on the board, but it can't encompass the whole thing. They don't understand how it all comes together. So, uh, uh, so what, it ta- what does it take, or ta- what it takes to make a worldview? We'll make it as a statement, or we'll leave off the S. And you see that, hopefully you can see it on the board. And we're, hopefully we're going to be using this a model to as we critique and evaluate different worldviews. But these are the big questions uh, that we have to ask. Uh, it's, it's an acronym. Uh, T-A-K-E-S. Uh, it's theology, 
What is someone's view of God? It's anthropology. What is one's view of man? Knowledge, how, how do they understand? What do they think about knowledge and how we can even know anything? Ethics, how do we live? How do we behave? And then salvation, what does that look like to every worldview? Theology, what, what is this world's view, presuppositions about God and ultimate reality? Is there a God? And if he exists, what is he like? How does God relate to the world, humanity, and myself? A deist would say that God, there is a God, but he's way out there. He's like a clockmaker. He just uh, uh, wound it up and let it go, and he doesn't get involved. Or a pantheist would say uh, God is in everything. In a certain sense, it's all of us together make up God. Anthropology. What is man? What are my presuppositions about man? Where did he come from? What is he like? What is his purpose? Why do we exist? Are we purely physical beings or just embodied souls? Are we special and unique or just an animal? Do we exist for any purpose? Are we inherently good or evil? Or somewhere in between? Uh, Knowledge. What are our presuppositions about knowledge and truth? Is there such a thing as truth? And in today's culture, whether it's uh, postmodernism or pluralism, there's a certain sense that, you know, know, your truth is your truth. If it works for you, it's true. But there is no ultimate truth. How can we know what we know? Are there limits to our knowledge? Can we know anything beyond what we see and touch? Is there anything besides this physical world? And how do we know that? Or ethics. What are our presuppositions about good and evil, right and wrong? What is the source, nature, and goal of our morality? What is the highest or ultimate good? Is morality a real thing? Or are we like Jack and it's just a human construct? Are there any moral absolutes? How do we know what is right and wrong? Are we accountable to anything or anyone for what we believe and how we live? And then salvation. What are our presuppositions or, uh, about uh, the humanity's basic problem and what is its solution? What is humanity's most serious problem? What's, what's the thing that, that's most difficult for us? And what is the solution? Are there multiple solutions? What part do we play in the solution? And, and if there is a God, what part does he play? Now, so how do we think about, if we're, if we're looking at what people say about God themselves, knowledge, ethics, and salvation, how do we begin to evaluate someone's worldview? We, we, we look to see if there's 
coherence? Does it make sense of the world? Where doesn't it make sense? Is there consistency? You know, Jack is an example of a man who was inconsistent. He wanted to believe that morality was a construct, but he wanted to believe that his girlfriend or his ex-wife had been evil towards him. In the 1960s, uh, uh, there was a Christian debating a, uh, uh, a Jewish evolutionist who didn't really believe in God. And again, that Jewish evolutionist, because we're just... Uh, uh, We're nothing. There's no difference between us and a blade of grass. There is no morality. There is no, there is, he was insisting there is no evil. This is around 1963. And uh, the man, the Christian who was debating him said, what about the Holocaust? Six million Jews died. The Jewish atheist had to pause and then he had to acknowledge that was evil. There is evil in the world, and we know it. Are we prayerfully thinking and evaluating people's worldview? Are we asking, where does it begin to break down? Does their worldview actually explain reality and make sense of the world? Does it take into account the evidence that's all around us? Can their worldview actually explain intangible, unseen realities that we know and we feel? Can it explain our own consciousness or our own awareness of love? A secular evolutionist might say that we're just water and energy. That at best we are no different than a a chimpanzee. That we're all animals. Are we willing to say that our spouse, if that's true, are we willing to say that our spouse or our child, or our grandchild has no more value than the mouse we trapped this morning and we killed? That's what the world is saying. If we're all animals, there's no difference, is there? It's just some are big and some are small. Where does human value come from? How do we explain human value and that we care about people who suffer if there is no God? In his book, uh, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis said this about uh, thinking about worldviews. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. We see Christ, but as we see Christ, everything looks different. So what is a Christian 
worldview. Well, let's take it uh, step by step, and, and this is our last part, uh, though it's uh, the longest part. There is a God. Hebrews eleven six. Anyone who draws near to God must believe He exists, and He rewards those who seek Him. As we think about these questions, these ideas, let's consider for a moment uh, the creation account, the creation and fall in Genesis one to three, because it's foundational to understanding our world and ourselves. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's actually an apology against ancient world religions. Uh, In the ancient Near East, when um, uh, uh, the Old Testament was written, Genesis 1 was written, uh, the, the nations around the Mediterranean believed in a multiple of gods. And the common story was that two gods were fighting and one was defeated and cut in two and half his body became the stars and the other half became the earth. The Bible says something different. The Bible gives a different interpretation of reality. And it says that there is not multiple gods, there is but one God. And he didn't just rearrange existing uh, reality. He created everything out of nothing. There was a moment when all that there was was God. Nothing else. Have you ever contemplated that thought? Because when you think about it, when you think of nothingness, what do you think of? You think of, well, I do, space. The vastness of space, but empty. There was no space. There was nothing. There was just God. And he created everything. Hebrews 11.3, by faith we know the universe was created by the word of God. And if God created everything, then our existence is contingent upon him. We exist because God says exist. Not just thousands of years ago, but in this very moment. If God didn't uphold us, we would cease, everything would just vanish. There would be nothing again but God. The universe, our being, has no intrinsic power to sustain itself. God sustains us. Which means if things are not going good for you right now? God is sustaining whatever the circumstance is. And you can, you can ask, and you can wonder why. God, if you love me, why am I going through this? 
But then what are you left to do? Just trust that he is good and that he is faithful. Our existence is contingent upon God. He is the only independent one. He is not dependent on us whatsoever because he existed forever without us. And so God is distinct from his creation, what's called uh, the creator-creation distinction. God is altogether different. He is of another being than us. He's of a different reality than us. We're part of a finite, created reality. He, he, is, rea- he is the ultimate reality. God always exists, and he created everything. We're dependent upon him. He is independent. But this God is a perfect being. He is all perfection, no limitations. In Matthew 5, Jesus tells us to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In Genesis 1, uh, 31, it says that God declared the creation on day 6 as very good, the way it was originally made. Creation was a reflection of God's righteous character. God is eternal. He is independent. He is perfect in all things. He is triune. One God, three persons. In Matthew 3, we see all three persons of the Trinity. Jesus, the the eternal Son, goes into the water to be baptized. He comes out. The Spirit descends upon him as a dove. And the voice of the Father declares from heaven, This is my beloved Son in whom. And when we are baptized, we are baptized in the name of what? The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, in the name of our triune God. That's a tough one to understand, and the early church struggled with it, uh, but that doesn't make it untrue. So uh, God is one and three. And he's the basis for understanding anything about unity and diversity. Because God is united and diverse. God is transcendent. We've already explained that. He's, all, he's altogether other. He is above the heavens. But he's also imminent. He comes close. Remember the deist would say he's just transcendent. He's just out there someplace. Uh, the, the pantheist would say he's all imminent. He's here. He's us. The one true God is both. He is above the heavens. He controls the universe. He upholds all things, yet he comes to minister to us. He walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. And the greatest example of God's imminence, his care for us, is Jesus himself who took on flesh, who lived our life and died in our place. This God is Lord and sovereign. 
He's in control of all things, Ephesians 1.11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. This sovereign Lord has all authority over the creation. Think of uh, Romans 9, 20 to 21. But who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Will the thing made say to the maker, why have you made me like this? Has the potter not the right over the clay to make of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable? God can do with us what he wants because we belong to him. And he has a purpose for everything, even the difficulties you may be going through. Proverbs 16.4, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. So that's the Christian worldview about God. It's a full-orbed, wonderful picture of a sovereign Lord who is all-powerful, yet cares for us. What's, what's the... Uh, Biblical, the Christian worldview of man. Man was made in the image of God. We are made to reflect God. In Genesis 1 to 3, God creates humanity to image Him, uh, to image His righteousness to the rest of the creation in creational dependence. We had freedom in the garden. We could do what we wanted with one prohibition. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. One test of our fidelity. Would we trust God? Would we dependently listen to his voice and his alone? We rebelled. We went our own way. We chose to be autonomous, independent of God, and to make our own decision. We became sinners and under judgment were exiled from the garden paradise of God. We now live in a fallen world and experience disunity, disharmony with God, with each other, and with the creation. Things don't work the way they're supposed to, do they? I use, uh, uh, to fit things on a page, I use a, 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 a Times Roman 11 font when I preach and teach. It's getting to the point that I can't read it anymore. I, I'm, I'm insisting on my, this is what I've always done, and this is what I'm going to do. But my body is breaking down. Things don't work the way they're supposed to. We're getting older. It's a reminder that we live in a fallen world. In our fallen state, we were born children of wrath in bondage to sin and death, suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness. We were sons of disobedience. Romans 3 tells us that none are righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned and gone their own way and have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. 
Our sin has affected our whole being. Our mind, our will, our emotions. And because of sin, we're going to die. There's physical death. And we're all going to experience that. Unless Christ comes. But there's also a spiritual death too, isn't there? The wages of sin. What you earn. The wages of sin is death. We will die, but our existence goes beyond the grave in one place or another. Hebrews 9, 27 is appointed for man to die once and then judgment. We are created in the image of God to reflect the glory of God, to reflect his righteous character. In sin, we fell from that. We're still in the image of God, but it's now distorted. But that image can be restored in Christ, can't it? Redeemed humanity, we can be restored to that perfect image. 2 Corinthians 3.18, as we behold the glory of Christ, we are being transformed into the image of Christ and 1 John 3, 2, and when we see him, we will be like him. And we will enjoy eternal life. Jesus says in John 5, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. God, man, knowledge. How do we know anything? Because God reveals it. God reveals himself to us. We can know God through uh, what's called natural revelation. What we see, what we experience. Uh, Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of the Lord, and the sky above proclaim his handiwork. Day by day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. God's speaking is all around us. Romans 1.18, And following, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. Romans 2 speaks about the law, the knowledge of good and evil written on the human heart, even in his fallen state. All of creation reveals God so that we are without excuse. However, in our fallen state, this natural revelation can only condemn us because we've already rejected the God 
that surrounds us. Salvation and knowledge of salvation comes only through special revelation, through the Word of God, who tells us of, it's God speaking to us, telling us of the truth of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. For all Scripture is breathed out from God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The man of God may be fully equipped for every good work. The Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, gives us knowledge to believe and then equips us to live a Christian life according to a Christian worldview. And our final two points, ethics. Is there is there a right and wrong? Is there an objective moral standard? Yes, there is. It's the law of God. The law of God reveals to us the righteous character of God. How do we know what God's like? The law reveals it. And the law then becomes a guide for us as Christians. We're not under the law, under the condemnation of the law. The condemnation is gone. It's been fulfilled in Christ. He took it upon himself. All that's left is the revelation of what righteousness looks like. And that's what we obey. Is there a moral uh, 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 goal to uh, uh, our ethics? Sure it is. The glory of God. That's why we live. Think of uh, 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whatever you do, do to the glory of God. And there is a, a, a motive, a, an objective moral motive, which is the love of God. Why do we obey? Because we love God. 1 John 5, 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome to us. I've, I've used this passage. I was uh, teaching on the law to the young adults and next, and I kept coming back to this passage because it's so meaningful to me. Uh, for this is the love of God we keep his commandments okay you know I've heard that before in other places in scripture and his commandments are not burdensome to me I may keep them but I may be grumbling on the inside it's not supposed to be that way is it because we so love God, we so love his righteousness, we so believe that his ways are best, that whatever he says in his law, we obey, and it's not a burden, because we know it's good. And then finally, salvation, and this is the easiest one for us. We are created in the image of God to reflect his moral character, we are to live for his glory, but we rebelled and are now in bondage to sin and under judgment. But God, in his kindness and his love, sent Jesus to live our life, to die in our place, to take upon him the judgment that we deserve so that we could be forgiven and restored to a right relationship with God. And this all comes not because we deserve it, not because we earn it, nothing we can do to contribute to it. Ephesians uh, 2, 8 to 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, 
And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, that no one should boast. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Salvation is a gift from God, not of works. No one can boast. But that gift of salvation leads to a changed life, to the good works that God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And he empowers us to do it. Such is the gift that it so changes our nature that we can now walk in obedience that we love God and we love his commandments and they're not burdensome to us. And that is an evidence that God has begun this work in us. And we are assured that what he began, he will complete. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you uh, for the truth. Father, we ask that each of us would so see your glory that we would grow to love you more each day. That we would long to spend time with you, to worship you, to give you thanks. And that the more we did that, the more we want to do it. Give us this hunger to know you and then send us out into the world to show your love to those that don't know you yet help us to love the lost even when we disagree and we ask this in Jesus name amen thank you